Uh, we have two readings today. Uh, the first one is taken from Isaiah 2, uh, verses 2 to 5, and you'll find that on page 681. And the next reading is Luke uh, um, 6, 20, verses 27 to 31, on, and you'll find that on pages, uh, page 1033. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say... Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them who love you. And uh, that's it. Thank you. Well, I intend to say a few controversial things today, but it shouldn't be controversial to open with the statement that Jesus of Nazareth is one of the most influential teachers in world history. I think I can get away with that, yeah? Uh, I mean, some of his teachings have become proverbial in the English language, and we say them without even knowing we're saying something Jesus said, like, salt of the earth, love thy neighbor, do to others as you would have them do to you. The good Samaritan, the prodigal son, uh, the blind leading the blind, judge not lest you be judged, wolf in sheep's clothing, cast the first stone, eat, drink and be merry, sign of the times, go the extra mile. And we say these things without you know, much sense that these were actually things Jesus said in the course of his teachings. And often we say statements of Jesus really with no idea of their connection. I had a really interesting conversation 
with a politician who shall remain nameless, but let's just say something to do with education, uh, who said that they like to live by the famous John F. Kennedy motto in life, to whom much is given, much is required. Completely unaware that this is something Jesus said first in Luke chapter 12. And I had a delightful conversation with him where I pointed out where it came from in the Gospels. He was delighted to know that it was even older than, uh, than JFK. And I have always loved what Albert Einstein also said about Jesus. Now, uh, I don't want to claim Einstein as a, as a you know, Christian believer. He certainly wasn't. He was quite down on organized religion. He was even more down on atheism, but still, he didn't like organized religion. But he thought Jesus was spectacular. Here's what he said in an interview, famous interview, about his you know, life and work. I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. No one can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. But I think we can say more than this. His influence runs much deeper than some beautiful sayings, he said. Some people have actually gone out to try and test his influence on the world. There was a really interesting study published in 2013 uh, uh, by Cambridge University Press in which uh, two information scientists, Professor Skiena and Ward, neither of whom is a Christian, came up with an algorithm they thought could test the relative influence of about a thousand historical figures from the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle through to Albert Einstein. And they had this really cool way of analyzing mathematically the impact that they had had. And to their own surprise, and it seems from the interviews I saw with these guys, embarrassment, that Jesus was clearly number one, the most influential figure in history. And we can perhaps be um, even more specific than that. I'm not sure if you know the name Samuel Moyne. He's professor of uh, history and law at Yale University and openly not a Christian, but he actually says, as an expert in this area, that our political doctrine of human equality that we all love so much actually can be traced specifically to Jesus. Here's how he put it. I don't doubt that, that Jesus Christ in particular um, brought about a revolution um, in thinking of people as, uh, as equal in the sight of God. Later, this idea of moral equality became an ideal of political equality, and there's no doubt that that's caused the world to change drastically. So you'd be hard-pressed to find a more influential teacher in world history than Jesus of Nazareth. But uh, now I want to be a little more controversial and say that there are actually a couple of mistakes that we can all make in thinking about Jesus as teacher. And the first mistake is one that you know, the general public frequently makes. And the other mistake is one that the church often makes. So this is a way to lose all friends uh, on both sides of the debate. Uh, but the first mistake is very simple. It, it is just to think of Jesus only as a teacher. 
to almost exclude everything else that he might say and reduce Jesus to a kind of Gandhi figure, you know, some, a guru who's just said lovely things that influenced our culture, and let's just leave it at that. He told us to be nice to each other. Excellent, I'm with Jesus. I was um, interviewed on Triple J Radio some years ago now when one of my books came out about Jesus, and they interviewed me at Christmas time to ask me all sorts of questions about Jesus, and um, Triple J is not, you know, hugely known for positive expressions of Christian faith. And so I really braced myself for the whole thing. And then they decided to have um, an open line where, where uh, people could call in and make comments. And I've really braced myself for that. But you know what? They, they took about 10 calls and every one of them was positive about Jesus. Also negative about the church, but really positive about Jesus. Often because he said, you know, love and peace and, uh, and uh, he really stuck it up the religious leaders. And so there was this sense that um, Jesus the teacher was fantastic. But what really struck me is no one mentioned all the other stuff. Uh, his healings, his claims about himself to be the Lord, and, uh, his death and resurrection. It was all focused on Jesus as teacher. Now this idea has a long pedigree, actually. You may never have heard of Joseph Ernest Renan, but he was one of the big scholars of the 19th century. And he wrote one of the most popular selling books of the 19th century called The Life of Jesus, in which he stripped back the theological Jesus and simply as a historian said that we need to think of Jesus principally as a Galilean ethical teacher who taught beautiful things. And he excluded all the kind of theological overlay and just left us with Jesus the teacher. Now here's the thing, even though we may have never heard of Renan, his impact on Europe and on the English-speaking world uh, is massive. So that this common idea that Jesus is principally, if not exclusively, a teacher actually can be traced back to Renan. Today's scholars, however, would actually put Renan's book forward as a classic example of projecting our own desires onto Jesus, onto the ancient evidence. They would point out that Renan was a 19th century French humanist. And so his analysis of Jesus turned Jesus into a first century French humanist. It's a projection of our own desires, and it's really possible for us all to do that, whether religious or skeptic, to make Jesus into our image. We have this sort of uh, cultural sense that he's fabulous, so he must be a little bit like my best thoughts, wouldn't he? The second mistake is uh, made often by the church, and in response to the first mistake, overemphasizing Jesus as teacher, the church sometimes de-emphasizes Jesus' as teacher. The church is so keen to remind everyone, he's not just a teacher, you know, he's the saviour who died on a cross and rose again. That we almost exclude in the church the fact that he is actually the teacher. He really was principally a teacher. I remember at theological college uh, being really impressed when it was pointed out statistically that about 20% of each of the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first century biographies we have of Jesus, 20% of them focused on just three days, the three days of his trial, death, resurrection. And I thought, that's pretty impressive, right? 20% of these books on three days tells you how important the death and resurrection of Jesus is. And it was ages before it dawned on me, that means 80% is about all the other stuff. 
Uh, always very slow with mathematical things. But 80% is about all the other stuff. And most of the other stuff is him teaching stuff. The church can de-emphasize this. Now, sure, Jesus was more than a teacher, but he really was a teacher. And this is the subject of a great lot of historical study today. Um, of uh, This is perhaps the 100 most recent historical books on Jesus, and every one of them has huge sections on the way he taught, what he taught, how he compared to other rabbis. It's a really big feature of modern research on the historical Jesus. Um, one interesting piece of research that Bruce Clark and I were talking about in between the services um, is by this guy, Edwin Judge. You may have never heard of his name, but he is probably the best-known ancient historian ever to come out of, uh, of Australia. In fact, he's more productive now than he was when he started in the 60s. But one of the things he did, a kind of breakthrough study in the 1960s, was to show that the impact of Jesus was so great on his first followers that early churches in the first century functioned more like schools than religious cults. And he lays out the evidence, that pretty clear, that if you were an ancient Greek or Roman and you bumped into a church, it would actually feel more like a philosophical school than anything you'd ever met in a religious temple. Um, and we, we have an echo of it today in, in something like Sunday school. You know, we don't call it Sunday school. I don't know, what do we call it? Kids club or kids church, right? But the whole idea of Sunday school comes from this idea that churches really thought of themselves as schools. Um, Another echo of this same theme is, did you know that virtually all schools up until about the 1850s were religious? So from the beginning, churches just thought of themselves as schools, and they were often teaching grammar and philosophy and uh, natural uh, philosophy, or what we call science. Such is the impact of Jesus as teacher that his followers always had this really high emphasis on teaching. Now, to go back to the ancient evidence, even non-Christian evidence from the ancient world emphasizes this aspect of Jesus, that he influenced people as a teacher. Here's Josephus. This is a first century non-Christian writer, a Jewish writer, who nonetheless has a neutral, maybe slightly flattering view of Jesus. About this time there lived Jesus, he says, a wise man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats, probably a reference to Jesus' healings, and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. But here's a non-Christian writing from the ancient world that isn't so positive about the influence of Jesus. This is what's called the Talmud. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth was hanged on a cross, for he enticed and led Israel astray. This is basically a way of saying, he influenced us too much and got what he deserved. So here's the non-Christian evidence, but actually, obviously, the Gospels provide even clearer evidence of the massive feature of Jesus' life as a teacher. Uh, so, for example, the opening year of Jesus' ministry is summarized by Matthew in these words in Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages teaching 
in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then if you go all the way to the end of the story, Jesus, when he's arrested, says in Matthew 26, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day, I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. It was his daily occurrence to teach. And one of the other tidbits of evidence is throughout the Gospels, Jesus is directly addressed 31 times as teacher. Dear teacher, dear teacher. And my favorite example is this one because it's that famous story of them being in a boat in Galilee which can whip up storms pretty quickly and they're in a storm and, and they're worried that they're going to be overturned and lose their lives and they wake Jesus up and their first words are, teacher. Now think of all the things you might have called Jesus at that moment. Lord, saviour, captain, whatever, right? But teacher, such was the instinct of these first followers that they addressed him as teacher. Now, we've sort of lost that in the church because Christians who address Jesus as teacher would be considered weird today, don't you reckon? I mean, if um, during the prayers just then, it was, oh dear teacher, we'd all go, what, teacher? But actually, it was a pretty common form of address. Um, So I guess what I want to say in this two mistakes section is that perhaps the church and the general public get to correct each other on this point. Sure, the church can correct the general public on the question of Jesus being more than a teacher, but the general public can correct the church because the church sometimes downplays the evidence that he really was a teacher. Okay, they're the mistakes. Let me uh, try now and do the impossible and summarize the content of Jesus' teaching. Okay? Uh, I'll give it a crack anyway. All historians agree. Really, if you open any historical Jesus volume, they all agree that the framework of Jesus' ethical teaching was a thing he called the kingdom of God. Now, you may have never heard of the kingdom of God, or maybe you think of it as, isn't that heaven? No, um, this expression was commonly used by Jews in the period of Jesus. We find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in other texts as well, where Jews believed that one day God would come and prove himself king over the world. He would establish justice where there is injustice. He would establish goodness where there is evil. He would um, heal the sick and raise the dead and prove himself king over creation. And they called that the kingdom of God. Jesus also taught the kingdom of God. It's everywhere. Um, In fact, in Mark's gospel, the first words you hear from Jesus are kingdom of God, Mark 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here are his words. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's a big deal. Uh, Jesus often introduced his parables, those beautiful stories he told, with references to the kingdom. So in Luke 13, we read, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed 
which a man took and planted in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Uh, All he means here is the kingdom of God will start small and end up international. He kind of got that right, I think we all agree. Although there's the uh, Lord's Prayer. You know, the one prayer Jesus taught opens with a statement about the kingdom. This then is how you should pray, Matthew 6 says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you have ever wished the Almighty would do something about the mess in this world, you have wished for the kingdom of God. If you've ever looked at the injustice and said, I wish the Almighty would do something about that, you have wished for the kingdom of God. Well, that's the framework of Jesus' teaching, at least of his ethical teaching. He said that uh, his students, by the way, the word disciple just means student. It's actually the word for a school student, disciple. His students, he said, should live now like the kingdom is already here. So the way he put it was sort of like this. We, the, the kingdom will bring justice into the world, so live for justice now. The kingdom will make all things well. So do what you can, my students, to mend what is broken. That's the framework of uh, Jesus' teaching. Let me pivot then to talk about the heart of Jesus' teaching. Because it's within this kingdom of God framework that we can understand the very heart and soul of what he asked of human beings in response to himself. And we've heard it already today. It's these words. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting anything back then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I regard these words on the screen as the most sublime words ever spoken. I know I'm biased, but I've not come across anything in historical literature like this. But not everyone agrees. Uh, Perhaps Australia's most beloved social commentator is Hugh McKay. And I love him too. And I've often quoted him entirely positively. But in 2016, he wrote this really interesting book called Beyond uh, Belief, in which his basic thesis was, our society can still pursue its ethic of love without religion at all. We don't need beliefs in order to have a society filled with love. I think that's a pretty interesting debate uh, worth having, so I commend uh, the project. But in the course of his argument, Hugh McKay makes two really interesting remarks about Jesus. The first is that Jesus' golden rule, 
in our passage today, do to others as you would have them do to you, is found in virtually all philosophies and religions, he tells us. Uh, The point is, we don't even need Jesus to come up with this idea of of love and doing to others as you would have them do to you. And the second really interesting thing that he says is, quote, Jesus never told anyone what to believe in. He only spoke about how to treat each other. I find these two really interesting claims, so let me uh, take them in turn. How about the first claim? That the golden rule is found in all religions. Well, um, the only example or or comparison that Hugh McKay gives in the book is that of Confucius, who did say something similar to what Jesus said, Uh, and in fact earlier than Jesus said it, since Confucius was about 500 years BC. Do not inflict on others, Confucius said in Analects 15, what you yourself would not wish done to you. Now, let's just soak this up. It does sound like do unto others as you would have them do to you. It's got the same sort of grammatical form. But let's look closely at it. Do not inflict on others what you yourself would not wish done to you. It's basically a negative formulation, isn't it, of don't do bad stuff to other people that you don't want done to you. Now, I want to say that is awesome advice, and may we all follow this advice. But I, I want to call this the silver rule. Like, pretty good. But it's not quite what Jesus said, is it? I mean, grammatically, they're similar, but look at the content. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies, do good to them. Jesus is clearly not just saying, don't do the bad stuff to others that you don't want done to you. He's saying, do the good stuff to others you want done to you. And I want to propose that they are actually worlds apart. One is a very passive you know, non-resistance approach, which is fantastic. And one is a highly active, engaged, doing good approach to life. It's pretty much the difference between me deciding not to punch my enemy in the nose, because I follow Confucius, and me deciding to build my enemy a hospital because I follow Jesus. They are kind of worlds apart. Well, what about Hugh McKay's idea that you know, love really wasn't you know, super central uh, to Jesus, that, that, that this is really common. I don't want to give the impression that only Jesus talked about love. For one thing, um, Judaism taught about love before Jesus came on the scene. The Old Testament emphasized love your neighbor long before Jesus. In fact, I remember um, interviewing uh, what everyone regards as the greatest scholar of Judaism of the last generation, Gaze of Amesh, who was professor of Jewish studies at Oxford University uh, for like 40 years or something. And um, when I did a documentary some years ago, I had a great opportunity to interview him. And when we arrived at Oxford, one of the first things he said to me, because he knew what the topic was going to be about, Jesus and the love command, and he said, John, you know that Jesus got his emphasis on love from Judaism. You know that, don't you, John? I was like, yes, Professor Vermesh, you know, I've read the Bible, for one thing, and uh, I've, I've read, you know, everything Gaze of Vermesh had written, so yes, sir, yes, sir. Then he said, but he radicalized it, so that now love of neighbor becomes love of enemy, love of leper, love of sinner, love of pagan, and, and was really 
confronting to be reminded by the world's leading scholar of ancient Judaism of the radical nature of Jesus' teaching of love. But what about this other claim of Humake? That, quote, Jesus never told anyone what to believe in. He only spoke about how to treat each other. Now, this is not just a passing line. I don't think I'm being unfair to Humake because um, he emphasized this at the Sydney Writers' Festival when he was promoting the book. He made a point of this. And the festival thought it was so significant, they tweeted it out. Hugh McKay says, Jesus never told anyone what to believe in, right? Only how to treat each other. So it's, you know, it's a thing. Now, let's leave aside the fact that anyone can observe when they read the Gospels that Jesus told people to believe in him all the time, <laughs> right? Let's, okay, but let's even leave that aside. And let's just stick with the passage we're looking at today from Luke chapter 6. Even there, you can see that he bases his love command, especially the love of the enemy, on beliefs, fundamental beliefs about God. Why does it make sense to love enemies, according to Jesus? Because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Why does it make logical sense to be merciful to the undeserving? Look what Jesus says. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. For Jesus... Love isn't just an arbitrary ethical command. Love isn't just a kind of cool way to organize society so that we don't hurt each other. What is love, according to Jesus? Love is the heartbeat of reality. The most true fundamental thing about the universe is God's love for the undeserving and the wicked. And so Jesus teaches that love is a reflection of God's love. It, it is getting our heartbeat in rhythm with the heartbeat of the universe. It's fundamental. In fact, it probably goes deeper than that for Jesus because his whole life course, not just his teaching, his whole life course was about love of the undeserving, love of the enemy, climaxing, of course, in his death on a cross. Which, if you read the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly said, is going to happen not because he failed to persuade people to be nice to each other. But this was the whole mission of Jesus. To die for enemies. To die for the undeserving, for the ungrateful. The whole point of Jesus, according to Jesus, was that on the cross, he bore the judgment humanity deserves and will experience when the kingdom comes and overturns all that is opposed to love. But he said, he bears that judgment in his own death for us so that anyone can be forgiven. Anyone can escape the judgment entirely because of him. Um, the reason I'm saying this is because it's crucial for even just a correct historical understanding of Jesus, that he did not merely teach love as an arbitrary ethic, but as the fundamental thing about the universe and the fundamental thing about his own life and death and resurrection. With all due respect and affection for Hugh McKay, it is probably more accurate to say 
Jesus never taught people how to treat one another without also teaching people to believe in certain fundamentals that made that way of life logical. And so here's the double lesson uh, for the church and for our wider community. We can't separate the teacher from the saviour. We can't separate. If we think of Jesus only as a teacher, not as the saviour who died, I put it to you that his teaching will sound like mere moralism. And what's more, it'll condemn us. Because who can live by what Jesus taught? This is often the experience of people who read Jesus' teachings, like especially the Sermon on the Mount stuff. They read it and they go, I'm condemned. But if that's how you approach Jesus, simply as the teacher, it will condemn you and depress you and make you think, I could never do that. But if we think of Jesus only as the saviour and not as the teacher, we become hypocrites, frauds. And if you know anything about Jesus' teaching, he castigated few things more than the hypocrites. We cannot separate the saviour from the teacher, the teacher from the saviour. It's only as we know the Saviour's love that his teaching about love won't condemn us but inspire us to love as we've been loved. See, it's the opposite of religion. It isn't follow this way and then God will be merciful to you. It's know that God is merciful, that Christ has died for you and then in all your bumbling mess, or maybe that's just me, try and love as you have been loved already. Years ago, I was speaking in Port Macquarie High School. And after the school assembly, in which I mentioned my Christian faith, this young guy, uh, I guess he would have been 15, his name was Nick, he walked up to me, made sure none of his friends was, you know, watching him talk to the religious nut, and said, look, I've been trying to work out if God approves of me or not. I said, oh, that's really interesting. How have you been trying to work that out? He reached into his bag, pulled out a big exercise book in which he'd drawn these accounting columns. And down the left-hand column, all these virtues that he thought Jesus would like, you know, peace, love, you know, kindness, whatever, right? And then across the top, the days of the week, he gave himself a score out of 10 for each virtue, for each day of the week, for pages and pages and pages. And he said, what do you think? And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. This beautiful little 15-year-old bloke who just thought actually the way you get into God's good books is you, you do the things that you think God has already taught and then maybe he'll, he'll forgive you. I had the enormous privilege of explaining to him sort of what I've explained to you but in different language Basically, that you could never earn your way into God's good books by your behavior. In fact, um, his accounting was a pretty good illustration of this because although he got a few fives and sixes, he got a lot of twos and threes. He's a pretty sensitive kid. He was condemned by his own accounting. 
But I explained that the whole thing is that Jesus entered the world, lived the perfect life of love we could never live, and then gave that perfect life on the cross for us, bearing into himself all that failure on the page so we could be forgiven, so we could know love. And only then do we go out into the world trying to follow these virtues, not as a means of earning but as the overflow of thankfulness that we are already loved by God. Now, I explained all this to this kid, and I kid you not, a tear welled up in his eye. And he grabbed this exercise book in, in a moment of great drama, went over to the bin in, in the playground and threw it away. And I stayed in touch with Nick for a couple of years after that and watched this young lad come to grapple with this beautiful idea at the heart of Jesus' teaching, at the heart of Jesus' life that we cannot earn our way into God's love through our behavior. But when you know that love and you know Christ has given himself for you, you know that you are forgiven. The inspiration to live the life of love is real. And when you fail, as you inevitably will, you don't beat yourself up again. You thank God for his mercy and move on. It's the opposite of religion. It's the heart of the teacher who is the saviour. So Lord, will you please give us minds to take in all of these things and remember the things that you want us to reflect on, to perhaps pass over the things that are distractions. But Lord, I do pray for everyone in the building that we would have real clarity about Jesus as teacher, but also about Jesus as saviour. Help all of us, Lord, to know your love and out of that love, live lives of love. I ask it in the name of the teacher, the saviour, Jesus Christ.